I feel terribly honoured that Radio Gamorgan or the Hospital Radio has actually asked me to do this. One guest, ten songs, ten reasons. Music was my first love. On Radio Glamorgan. My guest on this edition of Music Was My First Love was a founder member of one of the original TV dance troupes as part of one of the most watched programmes in the 1970s. But she's much more than that, an author, a dance teacher and co-founder of one of the biggest and most respected charities in the UK. I'm talking about Dee Dee Wilde and the dance troupe, of course, was Pan's People. With much to talk about, we'll hear from Dee Dee after her first choice, which is from Wales' very own Tom Jones. Forgive me, D.D. Wilde, welcome to Radio Glamorgan Music was my first love. Bowie da to Glamorgan <laughs> Hospital and Shamai. Thank you. You've been practicing that, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I have. I've even got it written down here. <sighs> oh, yes, Andrew, it's so nice to speak to you. I'd speak to you and to everybody at the hospital as well. And, of course, I mean, that first song, Delilah, Tom Jones. I mean, what can I say about dear, dear, lovely Tom? I mean, what an incredible artist. And also, of course, Barry Mason, who wrote the words is a great friend of myself and my husband, Henry Marsh, who was a composer. Yeah. They've done a lot of collaboration together. So, you know, it's a special song to me. And, of course, Tom, um, we did his show at ITV many years ago. It must have been in the late 60s, um, when he split his pants. I don't know if I'm allowed <laughs> to say that over, over hospital organ or not, but um, he did. And um, he was the sexiest thing on legs. And we girls were dancing behind him, behind him. So, you know, <laughs> when he his pants, it was an added bonus for us. Uh, did, you, uh, did you have music growing up at home? Um, no, not really. No, because most of my life I lived in Africa. Yeah. And uh, my mother used to have uh, music, music on sometimes. But no, it wasn't something that I, was, I grew, grew up with at all. And then, of course, the rest of the time, I was at boarding school. Yeah. So I only saw my parents once a year. So music was not something that I grew up with at all. No, no. Did you, do you have many memories of your time in South Africa? Of course I do. I have incre- incredible memories. I mean, I was so lucky. I, have, I had a twin brother called Stuart. And unfortunately, due to circumstances, we only went out once a year, which was very hard for two very small children. And the life we lived in England was very Dickensian, to be honest with you. But once we got to Ghana, to West Africa, I mean, you know, when you think of what poor children have today here in, in our own country, Britain, the freedom we had was incredible. I mean, my parents used to drop us off at the beach at 10 o'clock in the morning and pick us up at 6 you wow, know, and yeah. you were free to run around yeah. wild, do what you want. And it was the most wonderful upbringing. And also for a child, it was a very, very, you know, intellectual upbringing in a, in a way, you know, living in a completely different environment. Um, no, no, we had we had the most wonderful uh, childhood, you know, due, due to our sort of stay in, in West Africa. And was it? Was it difficult? You, you mentioned about boarding school, and you mentioned about seeing your parents once a year, um, and of course the Dickensian upbringing. But was was that difficult not seeing Very. your parents? Yeah. Funny enough, my brother never forgave my parents for abandoning him. For me, it was it sort of strengthened my resolve to be a dancer. And um, I just had to get on with it. But it was very difficult. I mean, come September, we would wave goodbye to our parents and get on a plane back to England, knowing that we wouldn't see them for a year. Mm. 
tough. You know, when you are sort of a nine-year-old, it's not much, that's not much fun. No, not at all. Um, and then, of course, in the holidays, it was a question of who would have the twins, because my brother was my twin. Yeah. Who would have the twins? And I remember my headmistress standing up, because in those days, I was called Alida Wild, not Dee Dee. Right. And they, she used to say, um, the headmistress stood up and said, listen, could you all ask your parents if you could possibly have Alida Wild for the holidays, because she's got nowhere to gay, right. go. And I used to cringe and hide under the table. Sure. And of course, one year, nobody would have us, so we ended up in a ghastly, awful um, home for the elderly in, in um, Hastings which was dreadful. So, yes, it wasn't much fun, I have to be honest. But uh, to be, but also, uh, you, you know, the one thing I wanted to do, I said to my parents when I was very little, I want to be a dancer. So my resolve to be a dancer kept me going. Childhood was, was, was tough. Um, but I went to a boarding school uh, where all we learnt was to dance, and that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I was so ambitious about my fact that I wanted to be a dancer that I just you know, got on with it, yeah. with my teeth, and just thought, well, you know, one day I'm going to be a dancer, so I've got to bear these problems. From one male legend uh, to a female legend, tell me about Aretha Franklin and Respect. Well, you see, uh, when we are on top of the pops, a lot of the, the black groups didn't come over to England in those days. Mm. So as a substitute, the directors of Top of the Pops put us in to dance to their numbers. So, of course, our preferable numbers were all Tamla Motown and all the wonderful black sounds like Harry Melvin and the Blue Tops um, and the Blue Notes, um, the Tops, um, Aretha Franklin, of course, and the Supremes, and I could go on and on. And, of course, one of my favorite is Aretha Franklin. I mean, she had such an amazing voice. And I just love the number respect. And the other one I like is Say a Little Prayer. But I thought today, you know, it would be appropriate to, to um, play respect because it was one of my most favorite, favorite ever numbers. And it, it's such a great, great song to dance to. You mentioned it briefly, but how did dance enter your life? Because from what you were saying, it was at an early age, the love for dance, wasn't it? Um, well, dance sort of entered my life when I was three years of age. Wow. I mean, we were in North Africa then, and I was just always walking around on my tiptoes saying I wanted to be a ballerina. My mother thought, well, I better send her off to ballet school. Uh, funny enough, Andrew, you know, I'm coming up to 76 this year, and I've been dancing for 73 years. Wow. It's all I ever wanted to do. I did have a sort of a disillusioned idea that one day I might be a wren, because I thought wrens went to sea with all the sailors. Oh, right. In those days, they didn't. <laughs> but dancing was really my first love, like you for you, music. Yeah. And so I don't ever remember doing anything else but dancing, to be honest. And was there encouragement from your family? Oh, inc incredibly so. And I have to be honest that in those days... Um, which was a very long time ago, you know, it's not like today where you have lots and lots of classes and anybody can become a dancer and go to, go, go to school and learn to dance and do all that. But in those days, basically, if you had a little bit of money or your parents were a little bit better healed, you could go to ballet school. 
and I went to a boarding school. Luckily, my father and mother were never rich, but they had enough money to send me to a boarding school to learn to dance. So I was incredibly fortunate because so many people I've met since who are my age have sort of said, God, I wish I'd been able to dance when I was young, but, you know, my parents couldn't afford it. So I do feel incredibly fortunate, and it's all I've ever wanted to do and still do now. And and still is all you want to do, reading Apple, yes, which I we'll talk about. Yes, I dance all yeah. the time. I do classes over the West Country. I have ladies, um, like-minded ladies like myself, who like to keep fit, who want to use their brain a bit and also learn to dance. So I try and take a lot of Flick's old routines that mm. she did. Flick Colby was yeah. our choreographer in Pans and sort of modify them. And uh, we dance to those. And in fact, we do performances. I'm off to to Stanton and Quinton next week to do a, a big performance. And yes, it's, it's very, dancing is very uplifting. It's so good for the brain. And just learning for them, just learning little bits of routines, they absolutely love it. And of course, a lot of the ladies are all on their own. They don't have husbands like myself. Mm. And this is a way of communicating with other people. And then we go out and we socialize. I mean, it is just the greatest fun. Now, the, the, reading up, uh, the school that your parents sent you to uh, was Elmhurst Ballet School. That's right, yes. But I read that, that what you really wanted to do was modern dance. So I, how yes. difficult was it learning ballet when it wasn't? It turned out to not be what you wanted to do. Well, um, no, you see, people get a wrong idea about this, that ballet is actual, in actual fact is the best grounding for any kind of dance. So I, so I was quite happy doing the ballet, but at my ballet school, they were a bit old-fashioned, so we didn't really have very, very good modern, modern dance teachers. So it wasn't until I actually left um, that I actually got into, into modern dance with, with teachers like um, Matt Maddox and Eva Megiddo, and I went to London to go up to Covent Garden to learn to do modern dance. And when I mean modern dance, uh, I don't mean contemporary dance. I mean the sort of modern dance you see on television. And, of course, Pan's people were the very, very first mm. who, who, who did that particular style of style of dance. Now, um, every now and again, Didi, when a guest on Music Was My First Love sends me through their list of ten songs, uh, there's always one that seems uh, a little bit out of place and that I wouldn't have expected compared to the other nine. Um, and here's yours. Are you a, a Hendrix fan or is it this particular track? Uh, well, not, funny enough, Cream and Hendrix and all that lot weren't really my first choice, to be honest. But um, Jimi Hendrix, I had the pleasure of meeting him once on top of the pop. So this is why I've actually put this number in. It's called All Along the Watchtower by Jimmy. I think that's the right name. Yeah, uh, yeah. By Jimmy Hendrix. And of course, I was at school with Mitch Mitchell, his drummer. And um, we were performing this particular song on top of the pops. Sorry, those are my dogs <laughs> in the background. <laughs> I've got two big dogs, oh, if lovely. you can hear them. And we were performing on top of the pops. And suddenly the door opened and in walked um, Jimi Hendrix himself. And it was incredible. He jumped up on the stage mm. and made a beeline for me, took my, ha my hand, did a bow and kissed my hand. Oh. And he stood on the stage with, with us girls and chatted to us. Yeah. And, of course, I said hello to Mitch. 
because I haven't seen him for a long time. And that was my sort of moment with Jimi Hendrix. Of course, I never washed my hand again. No, bet no. That's... And it was just incredible to be there with the man himself. So that was a fantastic moment for me. And I must admit, what a gentleman he was. Yeah. It was the sort that, you know, if you went through a door, he'd open the door for you. And he, he was slightly well-mannered for a rock star. <laughs> Wild's third choice on this edition of music was my first love all along the watchtower from Jimi hendrix so how did uh, you and pan's people come together oh my goodness <clears throat> right well it was back in 1966 that i was actually um in another group called the beat girls and we we were dancing at the dance center in covent garden and gary cockrell was our manager he was an american who'd come over and who'd built the dance center in covent garden and we were with him as the beat girls. The, the trouble with Gary is that he, he only gave us a very small amount of money every time we went out and danced. So the majority of the money he'd keep to himself. And then Christmas of 66, he said, um, I want you to go to Bournemouth for £7 each. And we said, no, thank you. We don't want to go to Bournemouth at Christmas for £7 each. No. So we left en masse. And then Flick, Colby... Um, Babs Lord, as she was, she's now Babs Powell, and myself sat up one night and decided that we would form a new group. And we were in Covent Garden and um, thinking about a name. It was about very early hours of the morning, about three in the morning. We'd chucked Di um, Dionysus' darlings out of the window, and we decided that Pan's people was the name for us because Pan was the god of music and dance. And he had six handmaidens, which he used to throw into a panic whenever he wanted to sort of play a joke on them. So he thought, yeah, Pan's people would be perfect. And that's how that was born. To begin with, it was Christmas 1966. We really didn't do very much. But in the January, uh, Flick Corby met a young man called James Ramble, who became our manager. And he sent out a booklet on us, which was sent to all different companies and a company in Belgium took us up, and we did our first gig in Belgium on Belgium TV in January of 1967. And then we went on for about 18 months before we got our spot on top of the pot. And how important uh, was Flick Colby to the whole project? Flick Colby was incredibly important. <clears throat> we were all English, and Flick had come over from America with her first husband, Robert Moresco, because he was working at the film school. And um, Flick had been with the Joffrey Company and a ballet company in, in America, or worked with the school there. And um, when we, we all met at the dance centre, because that's where we used to go for class, and we decided to start a new group, it was decided that Flick would be our choreographer, because she had a very, very interesting, new, inventive way of dancing which he brought over from America. So um, that's why we were so unique, because people looked at the way we danced and thought, my goodness, this is so new. Because at that time, all there was was the black and white minstrel show and the Tiller Girls and mm. things like that. So she was in a very, very integral part of Pan's people. In fact, we couldn't, couldn't have done it without us. She was kind of really the chief when we were the Indians. But mm. the thing was, we were a democracy, so we did have our say, but not when it came to choreography. Um, it was just flick. Whatever flick said we should do, we did. 
And I have uh, many, many happy uh, memories uh, in the 70s of watching Top of the Pops. You uh, can't be that old, Andrew. I'm 55. Oh, God, you're <laughs> young, darling. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in fact, one of my earliest memories um, of Pan's People on Top of the Pops is da- <laughs> dancing to um, Gilbert O'Sullivan's Get Down with, with oh, half a dozen dogs. Funny. I almost put that in <laughs> as one of my ten... Ten songs, but there's so many to choose for. Of course, you know the thing. The thing is that you know I have an enormous love for dogs. Yeah. Dogs are my greatest passion at the moment. So doing a number, Get Down, which is a very catchy tune anyway, yeah. and I did a big solo in that particular number, and we had five beautiful dogs, and then one of them kept <laughs> jumping off the stage. I only discovered that when I found it on YouTube a couple of months ago. I don't remember that, but but you carried on yeah, fantastically. Carried on. <laughs> yeah, the dog eventually got off in disgust and went off, <laughs> and we just carried on. But, I, you know, I, I made my choice of my ten songs, and I'm not going back on that. <laughs> Now, if I remember correctly, when the chart came out uh, in those days on Tuesday lunchtime, uh, which was a day and a half before recording Top of the Pops, um, if a song that you'd been learning all week went down the chart, you suddenly had to learn another from scratch. Absolutely. How difficult and how pressurised? We were given three days to learn our routine, which is quite a lot when you're a professional dancer. Because, I mean, if you look at Strictly these days, you know, how much they learn in a week. Yeah. Um, So we had three days, but as you said, on Tuesday on our last day of rehearsal, because we used to, in those days, record on a Wednesday. And then if the chart had gone down, we used to wait, Flick used to wait for the phone to go. And if one of the directors rang up and said, I'm so sorry, Flick, but you've got to do a new number, she'd pick up the disc and throw it across (laughs) the room. And then we'd have to work out a completely new routine that afternoon for the next day. And, of course, when the show went live, which it did quite often, that was nerve-wracking yeah. because you went out, you weren't absolutely sure of the routine. And sometimes, I must admit, Flick would be given a new number and we would actually hash up a new number from some of the old steps that we'd learned right. before in another number. We didn't have, she didn't have time to do a completely new routine. Did that happen often? Um, no, not that often, but it did happen. It did happen, and then we had to literally hash everything together. And, and people used to say, oh, my God, Pan's people weren't very good this week, and so-and-so went wrong. And I yeah. used to think to myself, well, you come and do this, <laughs> especially if you've got very little time to learn it. And we had one rehearsal on the, on the Wednesday afternoon at 2 o'clock, and then we'd go out and do it, and there was no situation of, please, director, you know, we went wrong, could we do it again? Yeah, you mentioned Strictly very briefly. Do, do you oh, approve... Oh, wonderful programme. So I was going to say, that the programmes that have followed, the, the Come Dancing, and, and obviously Strictly is like a modern-day Come Dancing, yeah. you've just answered the question, but do you approve of those programmes? Oh, well, of course I do. You do I mean, yeah. look, Strictly's... Strictly, I mean, have to have to say it's completely overtaken. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were on top of the pops for nigh on ten years, and it's been going twenty years, and it is the most popular, popular program on television. And I mean, the feel-good feeling when you watch it, those mm. incredible dancers. And of course, dancers today could do so much more than we could. I mean, they're so much looser in their limbs. They can do um, skating. They can do almost anything. They're much more versatile, really, than we, than we were. And I absolutely adore Strictly. And, of course, I could never be on it because I'm a professional dancer. Yeah. But I must admit, um, the programme, ta- it takes two. I've often 
thought to myself, yes, I'd quite like to do that and talk <laughs> about my old halcyon days, you know. Well, they might no, get... no, no, hats off to them. They're all brilliant. And I have to say, Ali Ash is left, and he was one of my favourites. Yeah. And so, funny enough, my father was a very good ballroom dancer, and he was going to become a professional, and then the war broke out. And he had two girlfriends called Ruby and Cherry Stone, and he used to alternate with them at the Cafe Royal in London, where you could get up and ballroom dance. <laughs> is, um, is choreographing to a dancer much the same as an actor learning a script? Oh, absolutely the same. Yeah. I mean, if you imagine there's eight beats, well, four beats to, to a bar, and then eight, eight beats to a section of eight, of course, yeah. and sometimes we would have a different movement on every beat. And you learn a routine exactly like you'd be like learning words if you were learning a speech yeah. or a part in a play or film or whatever. Now, funny enough, somebody asked me to be in a play. I couldn't do it. I couldn't learn a speech and remember it. But working out dance routines and remembering them is a doddle. Mm. And also, when we were in Pan's People, because we were so used to Flick's style, it was absolutely second nature to pick up whatever she was doing yeah. and, re and remember it. And you left Pan's people prior to the end. Yes. Was well, there any particular the reason? Is, dancing took its toll on me because uh, in Pan's people we had the most amazing costumes. In fact, a lot of the fashion companies used to watch every week, and then if they really liked one of our costumes, they used to copy them, and they'd be out in the shops within a few weeks. And the other thing, unfortunately, is in some of the situations, we wore very high platform heels. And my problem is I had a weak left ankle. And quite a few times I fell over and sprained my ankle and hurt it. And, of course, over the years it got weaker and weaker. Yeah. So by about the end of 75, my ankle was strapped up almost in every single show I did. So I'd been going quite a few years now on Top of the Pops, and I just thought, you know, between Flick and I, we sat down and talked about it, and it was decided, and I decided, that maybe that was the end of my time on Top of the Pops. So, of course, I have gone on to keep dancing the rest of my life. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, when you're a professional and you're on, on, on a set and the cameras are rolling and maybe it's, it's live. You know, if I keep sort of spreading my ankle and falling over, it doesn't actually, it's not conducive to the rest of the group. So um, I, I gave up. And Reluctantly, you... yeah. but I think there's a moment in your life when you know you have to stop. Are you still friends with any of the girls? Oh, of course I am. Yeah. The problem is, Andrew, there's only Babs and I left of the originals. Right. Yeah. And, of course, Cherry Gillespie, who was 17, 16, actually, when she first came to audition for us in 1971, is 10 years younger than, than, than Babs and right. I, and she, she's still around as well. And then Sue Menhenik arrived in 1974, and she's still around. Let's uh, get back to some music. Let's move on to your next choice uh, from Dean Martin. Now, you have to go back to 1945. My father, Commander Jimmy Wilde, was commanding the convoy in Sicily, in Italy, or well, actually Sicily, I should say, in Messina. And he landed his convoy in Messina, and it was there for about eight or nine months. And one day in December, uh, one of the ladies in town who got to know all the, the naval officers um, on, on the, in the convoy held a big party for one of the officers because it was his birthday. And this particular officer was my father. 
And at this party, he met a very beautiful Italian lady, um, actually who was half Sicilian and half Venetian, and they got together. And um, it was only a little while later that my father um, proposed to this young lady, whose name was Liliana, and that was my mum. And um, when they went out on their very first date, my father said to my mother, you know, who's that little old lady behind us? And she said, well, I'm afraid that's my, my chaperone. Anyway, after about two or three dates, my father said to my mother, how can we get rid of that little old lady? And my mother said in Italian, dobbiamo ere affidassate. And so, um, which means basically I have to be engaged. And so my father got down on one knee and proposed to my mother. And so I thought that I would dedicate that Zamore to my father and my mother. My Italian was so bad. (laughs) (laughs) I said it all wrong. Do you want to do it again? (laughs) Uh, Io devo essere fidanzata, which means I should really be engaged. So my father got down on one knee and proposed to my mother. Yes, I sometimes get a little bit tongue-tied. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lovely so, tribute to your, your parents. I'm sorry? That's a lovely tribute to your parents. Oh, it is. I mean, Mummy and Daddy, you know, Daddy was so quintessentially English. You know, he had a monocle. And my mother couldn't have been more Italian. She was vivacious and, <laughs> and uh, you know, always happy and a great raconteur and a wonderful cook. I mean, she, she was just an amazing woman. Love them both to bits. Of course, you know, they're now disappeared and gone to that place in the sky. Yeah. But, um, you know, I often think of them. And you, that wonderful love story. Beautiful. Uh, your next choice, uh, Dee Dee, is from one of the great rockers and recording artists who I'm guessing you must have met during the Pans People oh, years, Rod yes, Stewart. Tell me about him and Maggie May. Yes. One, uh, absolutely wonderful, darling Rod Stewart. Of course, um, I stepped out with Rod a couple of times, or a few times, um, back in 19, I think it was 1973, um, we, we met on top of the pops, of course, um, like you meet all the stars on top, on top of the pops. And um, there was a place called the BBC Bar, or the BBC Club, to be honest. And if you had a BBC Club card, it was gold dust, because it meant you can get to the club and meet all the stars. And one of them was Rod Stewart. And... Um, he said to me, well, you know, would you like to go out on a date? And I said, yes, I'd love to. And, and the terrible thing was that on that particular night, I was taken ill with suspected meningitis. Anyway, um, what happened was I was in hospital for a few days, and then one day a nurse came scurrying to my bedside and went very excitedly, oh, uh, Miss, Miss Wild, Miss Wild, um, there's somebody here to see you. Rod Stewart is coming down the corridor. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I'm lying here the la- like the lady of the Camilles, but not looking as beautiful. So I was a bit concerned. And in walked Stuart, uh, Rod Stewart with an enormous bunch of grapes and sat on my bed and held my hand and chatted to me. And of course, I'd only just recently had a lumbar puncture in my back to see whether I did have meningitis. So I was lying there, you know, on my bed, hardly mm. being able to move with this sort of <laughs> rock star in front of me. 
anyway, um, he went away and I got better and we did step out. We went out, you know, a few, a few times, but yeah. it was never meant to be. It wasn't a sort of long-standing relationship. But he was adorable, Rod. He was full of life and just a wonderful man. And uh, why this track in particular? I just love this, uh, this song and we did it on top of the pops and we wore these um, jackets and we had, of course, we had on tartan knickers. <laughs> and guess what, Andrew? I still have my tartan oh, brilliant. in my drawer. <laughs> Wake up, Maggie, I think I got something to say. Listening to another edition of Radio Glamorgan's Music was my first love with dancer, dance teacher, and author Dee Dee Wilde, choosing 10 of her favourite tracks. Oh my goodness, Stevie Wonder, my all time favourite. I just loved him. We did sign Seal Delivered on top of the pops. And, you know, danced quite often to one of his songs. And he really was the, the, one, the one singer that I preferred to all other singers. There's something about his songs I just adored. And then I had the extreme luck. Um, one year, Stevie Wonder actually appeared on Top of the Pops. And the incredible thing about that was that he and his band, they sang live because a lot of the songs on Top of the Pops are all recorded and they used to, the groups used to mind them. Yeah. But Stevie Wonder was, was live and it was so wonderful, you know, us girls sort of getting to meet him. It was sort of one of the greatest moments of my life, I think. Um, and just, just love, love, love his music and still do. For listeners uh, who don't know Didi, and I have to confess I didn't know um, your involvement, explain exactly what the Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy Charity is and how it came to be when you co-founded it in the UK yes. almost 50 years well, ago. Well, the Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy is a charity for autistic children. And back in 1965, I had a great friend called Andrew Miller, who was a big impresario. And, um, you know, he did music on the big festivals and put out incredible bands. bands. Um, and he said to me, um, Dee Dee, I'm starting a charity. Would you like to be involved? And I said, well, tell me a bit about it. And he said, well, there's 12 of us, 12 men and, and one lovely lady called Nancy Jarrett, who is the head of um, or one of the directors at... Uh, Moen Chandon, the champagne mm -hmm. company, and we will have our meetings there. And I thought, my God, all those lovely men and me <laughs> and champagne, what's not to like? <laughs> and anyway, I said, yes, of course, I'd be very, very interested. And so I joined um, Andrew Miller and the others, and we formed the Nord of Robbins Music Therapy Charity and went on from there. And it became, you know, it has patrons like Paul McCartney, and every year they have a lunch called the Silver Cleft award yeah. or silver cleft lunch which i sort of invented i invented the silver cleft basically a, a group who had, over the 10 years had been consistent in music was given an award at the silver cleft luncheon and i was the one who invented the silver cleft and we raised money for all these handicapped children and also to keep the goldie lee hospital going which is a hospital in north london and we keep this as a charity going. It is now the largest rock charity in the world. 
and they've got, you know, offices all over the place in America as well. I'm not so much involved now because also going to the lunch is very, very expensive. Mm. And basically all the big corporate companies take tables, but I couldn't afford to go now. But it is very much in my heart because I was there right at the beginning all those years ago, and now they raise millions every year. For, for this particular charity. And it's it's still to this day providing support for oh autistic and handicapped children. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I get letters from them all the time and say, would I like to come to the lunch? But tickets are about 500 quid each, and then you have to pay for all the booze and yeah. everything else, and I just can't afford it. But yet, yes, of course they are. I mean, it, it, as I said, it's one of the biggest rock charities in, in the world now and um, raises as I said, millions for, for the um, Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy Charity, which was named after Nordoff Robbins, who was the first person to sort of do music for autistic children. But I must tell you, Angie, it was such hard work. You know, ringing up companies and saying, will you please take a table and will you please take a page in, in, our, in our brochure? It, mm. was, it was not easy, easy making the money, but... Um, we managed, and we went on. Of course, there were so many incredible people involved. I mean, I could go over names like, you know, Take That and Queen. and you know, I mean, every single pop group was involved in somehow, especially when they came to the lunches once a year. And among my uh, many, many uh, CDs at home, um, of course, I have the uh, double CD of a live concert at Nebworth, which raised money for... Oh, uh, yes. Well, yeah. you see, Andrew Miller was in charge of that. He was, he was the impresario who put it all together. Yeah. And my children were quite young then, and he flew us by helicopter right into Nebworth. Oh. It was a very, very exciting moment. And I always remember Eric Clapton was the, last num- was the last star on, and he wore a pink suit, bright pink suit. <laughs> and it was the most incredible event. Nebworth. It, it really was something to remember. Of course, my children were delighted to be going up in a helicopter. <laughs> it was so, and coming over Nebworth and seeing the millions of people out there, you know, when we looked down, it was an incredible sight. Well, when you mentioned Eric Clapton. One thing I remember from interviews about that concert in the was um, Elton John had just had his first number one with Sacrifice. Oh, right. Um, and he was performing that among a couple of other songs, and Eric Clapton was in his band, as it were, and Eric Clapton said he hated the song Sacrifice because it was impossible to play on the guitar. <laughs> Isn't it funny that the Sacrifice was another one I was going to put in? Oh, I keep uh, mentioning them, I you see. I absolutely adore it. Yeah. But, of course, the one we did, we did of Elton John's, was um, Crocodile Rock. And we had these ridiculous sort of um, crocodiles on, on pieces of string which we danced with. And mine was called Arthur, and I still have it. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> along, so you got the crocodile outfit and you got the uh, the the knickers. Yeah, that was not an outfit. It was a crocodile, literally, which we dragged on pieces of pieces of ribbon. Right. And I have I have both. <laughs> yes. Um, something completely stunning for your seventh choice, Dee Dee, from Audrey Hepburn. Tell us about this one. Oh, Moon River. Well, of course, Breakfast at Tiffany's was always one of my favourite films, most favourite films, and of course I adored Audrey Hepburn. I mean, she was just everything every woman aspired to be. She was beautiful. She was funny. She was incredibly elegant because she always wore Givenchy outfits. And it's just an incredible song. I love it sung by her. But also, more importantly, it was the song choice that 
my husband Henry Marsh and myself had when we got married in 2011. Now, Henry Marsh was a member of a band called Sailor. Do you remember? Glass I remember Girls, Sailor. Glass of Champagne. Glass of Champagne, yeah. Well, back in 1974, Pan's people were doing a gig at Eastbourne with Leonard Cohen and Status Quo, and also Sailor, a band right. called Sailor, who were number two in the charts. And we met, we met them, Pan's people met Sailor, and, you know, Henry said I was always very standoffish, but I was just a bit shy sometimes. <laughs> and then, of course, about 40 or 50 years later, I met Henry again, and it was after I was getting divorced from my first husband, Andrew Corbett Bircher. And... Um, I met Henry again, and we started going out, and then eventually I left my marital home and packed up and everything and came to live down here in the West Country with Henry in a place called Rude Ashton, which is near about 40 minutes, no, not even that, 30 minutes from Bath. Henry is a composer and has won quite a few awards in America, especially in Chicago for his uh, music for Shakespeare. And he still does composing and still does music, and I still do my dancing, and we sort of muddle along very well together. Was he the singer in Sailor? No. Well, he was one of the singers. Mm. No, that was George Kayanis. He was the main singer. Um, Henry was on the Nickelodeon with, with Phil Pickett. I remember. I can picture it. Yeah. To, to Half Right, um, Karma Chameleon. Right, but yeah. Henry's done, you know, he's a very, very prolific writer. He's done written for America and for television and for, you know, plays and and TV in the West. And now he lives here, still composes, and I still dance. So should we play this for the two of you? That would be wonderful. I'll be reminiscing uh, on my, about my beautiful wedding and how I was going down the aisle. One of the gentlemen in, in, the, in the congregation stepped on my dress, <laughs> my train. <sighs> Waiting round the bed Very friend, oh, river and me. For my dear husband Henry Marsh, lovely memories. Original member of Top of the Pops dance troupe Pan's People, Dee Dee Wilde, is my guest on this edition of Music Was My First Love. How did you get into writing, Dee Dee? Into writing, well, funny enough, my my brother was a new age author, and was very successful and made a fortune out of his books. And my mother was a writer, and it's something I've always had passion for most of my life. And when we wrote the Pan's People book, unfortunately, we wrote it all together. Um, but I I am at the moment writing my story of my life as a dancer, which I hope to put out. And I write, um, I write children's books. I've written about 20, and I'm in the middle of... of um, I illustrate them, too. And I'm in the middle of trying to get one animated, and my husband's going to animate it for me. And also, um, I am Mrs. Mabop. I always get my, my similes um, all muddled up. <laughs> and so I always, you know, get, get words completely wrong. So I wrote a little book called You May Now Kiss the Dog, (laughs) which is full of all my malapropisms. (laughs) And um, I decided to illustrate them. And um, I got a publishing company and they put it out, which which, um, is very exciting for me because I've never really done that before. And also, drawing is not something I've always been used to doing. But somehow it seemed to work for this small book. 
I mean, just for an instance, one of the things I said quite recently was we were talking about um, a girl we'd seen on, on a programme and Henry said to me, gosh, she is so like Julia Roberts, the actress Julia Roberts. Mm. And I said, yes, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if they did a, if they did a biopsy on her one <laughs> Well, my book is full of things. Oh, like, brilliant. you know, I don't first vote Labour. I've always voted Conservatory. <laughs> things like that. So my little book was actually quite successful because it, you know, it, it's a very funny little little book to, to put out. And I'm now writing, now that I'm getting older, Andrew, uh, I, I feel, you know, one day I won't be able to dance anymore, but I can still, I can still write and use my computer. Yeah. And that's what, I, what I'm doing. The wonderful thing is, I feel at my time of life, you know, I'm never bored because there's always things to do yeah. and I can always be creative by, by writing. And when, when can we hope to see the autobiography? Well, let's be like, I've written about 15 chapters and then I've got to add pictures and I've got to correct it to make sure it's all, it's all correct. Um, so certainly, it certainly won't be this Christmas. No. Probably the following one. Your eighth choice is from the time of recording uh, in uh, June 2022. Uh, a lady currently in the UK and about to play the legend stage at Glastonbury, Diana Ross, together with the Supremes. Tell me about Baby Oh, Love. the wonderful Diana Ross and the Supremes. And as I said, you know, in those days when the black groups didn't come over, um, we used to dance to the American groups, and one of them was Diana Ross and the Supremes, and her songs were absolutely brilliant and of course baby love has always been one of my favorite because on this particular number we wore these beautiful long dresses which were sequin and we had enormous fans really ginormous fans and we stood on podiums which was very lucky because that particular week when we did baby love i sprained my ankle yet again so i couldn't dance so we stood on these podiums we each had a podium each us girls and we waved these beautiful fans around, so I didn't really have to use the bottom half of my body. And I never forget that, that number because, quite frankly, it was one of the most glamorous numbers we ever did. And it was very much synonymous with how we were and some of the incredible costumes we had on top of the pops. And I just love the tune. Baby I want to uh, go back to 1981, uh, which brought yes. a new direction in your career with your then-husband. You co-produced two West End shows, The Mad Show and, uh, you'll have to say it for me, yeah, Le... The Mad Show and Le Cirque Imaginaire. Well, The Mad Show was just a whim, and it was a brilliant idea. In actual fact, a little bit like Britain's Got Talent. It was that sort of show. Right. And we did it on the West End, but unfortunately it was a huge flop. Um, my husband um, at the time, who was Andrew Corbett Bircher, and myself, an ex-army officer, we got together with, an, with another gentleman and put on this show in the West End, which was a very good idea, but we didn't get enough people and not enough bums on seats, basically. Mm. And through that, because we'd actually financed it with our house, we lost our house. But, that, you know, that's one of the things you do when you go into show business. Yeah. You take risks. But it was a great, great, great opener for us. And then after that, we went on to do Le Cirque Imaginaire. 
Victoria Chaplin and Jean-Baptiste Thierry were a married couple, and they did this wonderful sort of fantasy show. She was the daughter of Charlie Chaplin. And this show had already been on a few years previously, but we decided that we wanted to put it on in the West End. So my husband took a third-class ticket to Paris to meet them, to convince them that we were the right people to do it. And they obviously liked him and later liked me. And so we put it on first as a collegiate and then um, oh, Paul Raymond's um, theatre in the West End. And it was an enormous hit. And we even had royalty coming. We used to be there every night waiting and greeting people. Mm. We had royalty coming to that. And it was one of those shows where uh, Victoria would come and out and do something, like sometimes she would tightrope or she would put on these weird and wonderful costumes or do things in stilts. And then um, Jean-Baptiste was the, the funny side of it. He'd do all the comedy. And they had animals on it, like geese, and their children were actually performing as well. And it was just a weird and wonderful show. I'm sure if it was brought back today, it would, again, sell out in the West End because it was such a unique show. And then... During the 90s, I guess one of the highlights of your career was dancing the part of Erda at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden, a role especially devised by Richard Jones, um, and you became the first person to dance the role rather than sing uh, absolutely, it. Absolutely, yes. Um, but I had a friend called Matthew Hamilton who was a choreographer, and he'd been asked by the Royal Opera House to do the choreography for The Ring Cycle, which was and the first... Um, show in the ring cycle or the first opera i should say was das rheingold and erda features quite a lot of it she was mother earth in das rheingold and it's usually sung by a soprano but the director decided that this year he wanted a dancer to do it and he wanted a mature dancer so matthew said well i i know a lady who'd be absolutely perfect for that and her name is Dee Dee Wilde. She used to be in Pan's People, and she's about the right age, and I was. I was 48 then. And so I was given the role of Erda to dance. And as you said, rightly, I was the first woman ever in 150 years of Wagner to actually dance the role and not sing it. But there was a wonderful Swedish um, lady, soprano, who was going to sing it. And the director had to ring her up and talk to her and very kindly and sort of diplomatically say, listen, I'm really sorry, but um, Dee Dee's going to dance it in front of the stage and you're going to sing backstage. Well, funny enough, she was actually perfectly all right about that. And she was charming to me, you know, came up to me and congratulated me and said good luck and everything. So she didn't throw one of those hissy fits no. that some <laughs> opera stars do. But it was for me, I can't tell you, Andrew, I mean, to be working at the Royal Opera House, and I had a dressing room on the same floor as the other stars, and I had, I had Dee Dee Wilde at my door with a big star, oh. and I've still got that. <laughs> and um, also, my costume was, they spent a fortune on my costume, and I had a dresser for my, for my makeup, and I had a dresser for my, for my dress. and I had, I had somebody else who did my shoes. You know, I was treated like a star, and it was one of the most amazing moments of my life, being out there on that big, big stage at the Royal Opera House doing my dance with John Tomlinson, may I say, who's one of the leading singers in the opera, mm -hmm. and especially his forte is doing Wagner. Your uh, ninth choice always puts a smile on my face. Why I'm Too Sexy from Right Said Fred? Well, I'm Too Sexy 
we go back now to the late... In fact, no, I don't think it was the late, it was the early 80s. And I was ensconced at the dance centre, which was my studio that I started. I originally started the dance attic in Earlsfield. But then I moved to Putney Bridge Road and built this big dance studio. And right said Fred actually ran our gym. Yeah, they ran our gym, but that was a little bit later. But one Mm. day, Fred came to me and he said, Dee Dee, I'd like you to listen to this song. So we went into the back room and I listened to the song and I thought, my God, what an incredible song this is. And I said, he said, do you like it? What do you think? And I said, well, if that's not number one, I'll eat my ballet shoes. (laughs) And of course, that song was I'm Too Sexy. I haven't seen them for years, but um, they were very much part of our life when I ran the dance attic with my husband, um, Andrew, at the time. I'm too sexy for my love, too sexy for my love, love's going to leave me. Your final choice, Dee Dee, on this edition of Music of My First Love uh, is from the Walrus of Love himself, Barry White. Tell me about this one. We did um, this last song, which is my first, my last, my everything by Barry White. We did it on Top of the Pops three times in a wonderful, wonderful costumes. The first lot were sequin, and then the second costumes we wore for that number were enormous white hats and leotards, just white leotards. But the problem was they were very see-through, these leotards. <laughs> and, of course, in those days, we never wore bras. <laughs> so, you know, hun- we all had hundreds of sort of technicians and cameramen and people coming in the studio to <laughs> dance on that number. But, I mean, a fantastic number. But the other reason why I want to mention it is because in the, uh, you, in the millennium and after the millennium, when I came to live down here, I started classes in the West Country. And all these lovely ladies of my age used to come to class. And one of the first numbers I ever, ever taught them, which I told them that I did on Top of the Pops, was my first, my last, and my everything. So basically, it is really one of my signature tunes now. And I have this the, a dance group now, and we are called the Wild Bunch, which <laughs> W-I-L-D-E, you know, all, la- all sort of old elderly ladies of a certain age called the Wild Bunch. I thought that was quite sort of tongue-in-cheek. And we go out, we perform. In fact, the next gig we're doing is at um, Stanton Park in Stanton St. Quinton next Saturday. And um, it has a very, very sort of warm place in my heart, this particular song, A, because of Top of the Pops, and B, because of all my lovely ladies who come to my classes. Can I uh, politely say, because you mentioned it yourself a couple of times, that you're in your mid-70s. Uh, you're still holding regular dance classes, still writing. Yes. Um, as you told me during our email conversations, currently use, learning to use IT equipment. And yes. as you look back on a long and full career, and I think you might have touched on this with, with the Opera House, is there one thing professionally that you're most proud of? I would have to say two. Okay. Well, well, proud people. <laughs> yeah. And um, my role as Erda. I thought so, yeah. 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 Because they were so diverse. Yeah. Does dancing keep you young? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And of course, you know, I'm coming up to 76 and my memory is not what it was. So I do forget things. And it's very, very good for keeping that going, keeping your memory going, because I'm teaching routines and remembering them at the same time. It's a wonderful way for, you know, meeting other people and the camaraderie that we have 
all us girls together is incredible. But the most important thing is the music and the dancing. Dee Dee Wilde, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much. Oh, Andrew, thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful. I've loved it. Lovely pleasure. Thank you. Uh, bye-bye to you all out there at um, Radio Glamorgan and also at the hospital. been listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan, where Dee Dee Wilde has been choosing ten of her favourite songs. I'm Andrew Wolfe, and join me again soon when someone else chooses ten of their favourite tracks on another edition of Music Was My First Love. Music of the future